Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the book of Joshua from the Old Testament. Now, the reason why uh, we're talking about Joshua out of all Old Testament books we could start with in our podcast is because... A number of years ago now, I uh, read a number of volumes in the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible series. We've mentioned some of those before and was really impressed uh, with a number of the ones I read. And so I was sort of idly curious, like, gee, I wonder if there are any left available. So I wrote to the editor and he said, you know, is there anything open? And they said, well, the only one we have left is Joshua. Someone was going to do it, but then they dropped it. That's it. So I thought, oh, Joshua, I don't really remember Joshua. So I said, well, let me think about it. So I, you know, got out my handy dandy Bible and started reading and I got to chapter eight. And by then I said, nope, nope, nope. (laughs) Somebody might do it, but it's not going to be me. And uh, ever since then, I have regarded Joshua as the, um, how shall I say this, most difficult book to consider part of holy and canonical scripture. (laughs) Um, (laughs) chiefly because it is uh, in the classic definition of war, terror, and boredom. So the first half is largely terror with this uh, apparently divinely sanctioned act of genocide against uh, poor, nice, friendly Canaanites doing their business, you know, plowing their crops and raising their sheep in in the land. Um, And then the second half is this mind-numbingly boring collection of names and boundary markers. So, you know, thinking that Joshua was clearly beyond the beyond the pale, I just happened to mention to my dad, you know, hey, you know, there's only one volume left, Joshua, no one wants to do it. And dad, um, what was it you said, dad, where uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread? I like how that uh, <laughs> that sets up the difference between you and me. You immediately wrote and said, I'll do the Joshua book. <laughs> so uh, given my revulsion, why don't you uh, describe to our listeners why it is that you decided to take up this book of Joshua to write a commentary on? Well, you know, like many others of my generation, the most important historical event of my adult life was September 11, 2001. Uh, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon And the whole issue discussion of religious violence uh, that was generated by that, the tendency of Christians to scapegoat Muslims ignoring their own history of crusades, and the tendency of New Testament Christians to scapegoat Old Testament Judaism as the source of this violence, all the scapegoating that went on and continues to go on. And also, in in some ways, the shallowness of the discussion. Uh, Hannah Arendt taught me a long time ago that the concept of violence is not self-evident. All physical interactions between embodied beings employ some element of force, or if you want to put a negative spin on that employment of force, coercion. You can't eat without using force, even vegetables. Even vegetables. You know, so there's a lot of uh, conceptual unclarity about what violence actually is. Moreover, you can't get the violence 
out of, not just out of what the Israelites did according to the book of Joshua, but you can't get the violence out of the God of the Bible. Every Sunday, Lutherans sing lustily, this is the feast of what? Victory. Victory for our God. Sorry, folks, that's not cheerleading at a football game. That's talking about the eternal defeat of the hostile powers of sin, death, and devil. And uh, along with that, according to biblical depictions, a great deal of corrupt humanity in the process. So the problem of divine violence, the theology of divine violence, is uh, confronts us on a profound level, and eager attempts simply to disassociate religion and God from violence strike me as uh, well-intended but pretty shallow. So yes, I said, here's a challenge I really want to undertake. All right. Well, better you than me. So <laughs> so we'll start off with a plot summary, which I'll think I'll let you do. And just a note to head up here, um, we are going to avoid pronunciation of the divine name or tetragrammaton. We will say the Lord instead, which is the traditional Jewish circumlocution for the divine name, uh, just out of respect for the preciousness of that name and the um, long tradition of not saying it outright. I notice a lot of Christians kind of uh, freely fling the name around. And again, it is um, not forbidden to us in the same way it is to Jews to say it, but I, this is a, an act of respect that um, is important to me personally. So that's what we're going to do in the episode ahead. Okay. So let's just, uh, probably most uh, listeners today have never sat down to read through the book of Joshua. And not a whole lot in the lectionary. Right. And if you've ever tried to read through it, like Sarah, you'll probably stop with revulsion by the eighth chapter. <laughs> If you get to the 10th chapter, when uh, the land had rest from war, uh, because the conquest was supposedly completed, then the next eight or 10 chapters will just about bore you to tears as the land is uh, divided among the 12 tribes and the Levites and cities of refuge are established. And then the book has an altogether strange uh, conclusion in which uh, there's a renewal of the, the covenant ceremony, and Joshua gives a final speech saying to the Israelites who have obeyed him uh, implicitly through the whole conquest, and they say, yes, we'll keep the covenant. Yes, we'll obey it. And Joshua says, no, you won't. You're going to fail. And that's kind of how the book ends. So you can read the book of Joshua and say, what in the world? What kind of story is this telling? What just happened here? What just happened? So we go back to the beginning. I didn't talk about the first 10 chapters very much yet. It begins, of course, after the death of Moses on Mount Nebo, outside of the Promised Land, he's forbidden to enter, but the mantle of leadership is passed on to Joshua. Joshua's name is, uh, there's a special term for this, I can't remember what it is, but the divine name is embedded in Joshua, and it means, his name means the Lord saves. And it's interesting also that this Septuagint Greek translates Joshua's name as Jesus, which is the same Greek word used for the name of Jesus in the New Testament. We'll come back to that coincidence in a, in a little while. 
But in any case, it begins with Joshua being assured by God that the Lord is with him. He's not to be afraid. He's to undertake his mission of taking possession of the land that the Lord had promised to the ancestors centuries ago. That's his mission, to take possession of the land. And he's not to fear because it's not really him or the Israelite troops that are fighting. It is the Lord that is fighting for them. Be strong and have courage, for it is the Lord that fights for you. That's the opening message of the book of Joshua. Then there's a long series of preparations of the people as they prepare to cross the Jordan River. They have to sanctify themselves, purify themselves. And they take up a procession uh, at the head of which is the Ark of the Covenant. It's important to realize that the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of the invisible Lord. That's what the Ark is. It's a throne. And so the symbolism of a procession led by the Ark of the Covenant is that the Lord himself, the King of Israel, is leading his people into the promised land in order to dispossess its inhabitants and hand the land over as promised to his people. The Lord goes before Israel and the Lord fights for Israel. That's the meaning of the procession with the ark. And that leads immediately to the next episode that as they cross the river Jordan, just like a generation before at the Red Sea, the Lord causes the waters to wall up so that the people can pass over on dry ground to the other side. So there's a recapitulation of the Exodus miracle here, and another, it's another way of confirming that the mantle of Moses has now fallen upon Joshua. So they enter into the promised land. The first city that they encounter there is Jericho. Another Sunday school favorite, that one. Yeah, Josh fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. But this is utterly fantastic when you, when you think about it. I have to say that before they engage Jericho, Joshua is apparently scouting out the area, and he encounters this strange or mysterious being on the road, and he knows that it's a divine theophany, uh, that he's on holy ground, just like Moses met God at the burning bush. So here's another recapitulation of the Moses story occurring to Joshua. And Joshua asks the, this mysterious being, who are you? What's going on here? And the mysterious being replies, uh, I am the captain of the Lord's army. And Joshua then says, are you for us or against us? And the dis mysterious being answers, well, in effect, neither. It's a very odd theophany. But what it indicates is something critically important to understanding the theology of the divine warrior in the book of Joshua. Namely, God has his own agenda. God is not simply a deity that can be enlisted to whatever cause his chosen people, the Israelites, would select. 
God is not necessarily against the Canaanites. Rather, God has God's own agenda, and the blessing uh, and of the land and Israel's possession of it is going to be conditional upon Israel's conformity to God's purposes rather than any of its own uh, otherwise human purposes. So this is not just a simple and straightforward God's on our side and not yours kind of story, which is an easy way to read the book of Joshua, but God's involvement and support of the Israelite invasion is very complex. There's even, you know, as I've said to you when we've talked about this before, a kind of God against God quality to the whole story, which I think is most clearly seen in this, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? No. <laughs> Right, exactly. It, it is complex, and it, it, it is all about the kingship of God. Remember, that's what the ark, the procession with the ark means. Uh, unlike the Canaanite cities, which have their own kings, uh, which are going to be dethroned and humiliated and executed, uh, Israel is under the kingship of the Lord. And the Lord has his own purposes, which are not to be confused with things Israelites might want, as we'll see as we get into the story a little more deeply. So, going on from there, we have this first of a series of fantastic miracles in which the Lord fights for Israel. So, for seven successive days, the entire entourage of the Israelites uh, and trumpeteers follow the Ark of the Covenant as it circles the walled city of Jericho once a day. And on the seventh day, they circle the city seven times. Now, if you're inside the walled city, and you're looking at this spectacle and you're saying, what are these crazy nomads doing? <laughs> you know, this is, this is what a way to siege, make a siege or fight a war. But that's exactly the point. This is no normal way to fight a war or make a siege. This is something utterly unusual. Now, some scholars say, look at all the ancient Near Eastern cultures had divine warriors who fought their battles for them. Yeah, and all of them invoked certain kinds of cosmic signs or miraculous events. All of that's true, but there's something very peculiar going on here. When it's the mere procession of the Ark of the Covenant, the invisible, the, the visible throne of the invisible God, uh, circles on the seventh day of the city of Jericho for the seventh time, and then the trumpets blare out, and the walls collapse so that the Israelites can rush in and decimate the inhabitants and take possession of the city. Embedded in the story of the collapse of Jericho's defenses by this wild miracle is the story of Israelite spies and the Canaanite prostitute Rahab. Yeah, at one time, I don't remember why, I had to preach on this text, and I said, they probably just stopped in for a glass of water. <laughs> yeah, you visit the prostitute for a glass of water. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So here you have Israelite spies doing what they're not supposed to do. They're not spying. They're cavorting. And uh, 
There's suspicion within the city because they're recognized as outsiders, and the king sends messengers to Rahab's brothel uh, to find out who these spies are and what they're up to. And Rahab says, I've heard of what the Lord is doing for Israel, and the whole land is in fear because of uh, what he's done in the wilderness and your protection at the Red Sea and so forth. So I will hide you from the police if you will rescue me when you take Jericho. And the spies say, yes and amen. And then the spies disappear from the story. They just go back and tell Joshua and say, we promised that we would save her and her household. And so then in another echo of the Moses story, how are they to know which house, uh, supposedly in the walls, collapsing walls of Jericho is Rahab's, she's to uh, hang a, a scarlet thread from her windowsill. Like the the blood of the lamb on the lintels of the Israelites' home. Right. Another echo of the Exodus story. So in, in many ways, the Joshua story is saying, look at what God did through Moses in rescuing Israel from Egypt. God is now doing again through Joshua to deliver the promised land. Um, and so it happens that Rahab is rescued on that day of decimation after the walls collapse. And it, the point is made that uh, she has remained as a foreigner in Israel to this very day. That's what the text says, she and her family. And then later in the Bible, it's interesting. She's an ancestor, I think, of, of, of Ruth the Moabite somehow. And then uh, in one of the genealogies in the New Testament, she's regarded as an ancestor of Jesus. Yeah, in Matthew's genealogy, she's singled out. So, and then corresponding to this outsider who by confession of the Lord's name and what his agenda is and what he's doing for Israel, this outsider who is spared from the destruction that the Lord had otherwise commanded of the Canaanite inhabitants, there is also an Israelite by the name of Achan of the tribe of Judah, an insider of insiders, Judah is. And if, after Jericho, in the next battle for the little city of Ai to the north of Jericho, Israel's defeated, amazingly defeated, they think it's going to be a piece of cake, and in fact, they're routed. And Joshua laments to the Lord, have you brought us here to destroy us? What's going on here? You just gave us Jericho, and now you let us be beaten? And Joshua comes to the realization that there's a secret sin that has been committed within Israel, which has brought a curse upon the whole people. And through a process of divination, Achan is found out that he has kept for himself, for his personal possession, certain forbidden booty from Jericho, taken it to his tent and buried it under the ground. And so when Achan is found out, Joshua puts his hand upon him and says, Son, confess, give glory to God. What have you done? And he says, yes, I got greedy and I took the booty. It's in my tent there. You can find it. 
and consequently the curse that had fallen upon the inhabitants of Jericho is now applied to Achan and his whole family. They themselves now have become things devoted to the Lord. We'll talk about this term in a minute. And Achan and his family must be executed, and along with the booty, the loot that he had stolen from the city, and a heap of stones is piled over them that exists to this day, the narrator says, as a warning. So again, in a very dire way, we are shown that just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're immune from all danger and harm, including from the Lord. And just because you're an outsider doesn't mean you're beyond the Lord's purview of salvation. And what makes both of these stories work, however, is this, in Hebrew language, harem, this command that is usually translated to utterly destroy. Or devoted to destruction. Yeah, talk a little bit about that now. Right. Let me just finish the plot line quickly, and I'll come right back to that. So after that, then they conquer Ai, and they go on a a blitzkrieg campaign uh, through all the territories uh, uh, of of, of Canaan. And that culminates in chapter 10 with the defeat of an alliance of 10 Canaanite kings which ends in a particularly brutal way in which the kings have hidden in a cave and they're disco- and then they're just kept there alive and then they're brought out and Joshua puts his foot on the head of each Canaanite king utterly to humiliate them and then they're hung by the necks suspended from trees uh, to die and then their corpses Uh, buried in a uh, cave to utterly remove them from the face of the earth. And I think we'll talk about um, what we do with this as Christians later on, but I have to say I was really struck in rereading this, the imagery of the utterly cursed and rejected hanged on a tree and then buried inside of a tomb with a huge stone that prevents them from ever getting out again. Yes, there's an echo there of something I see in centuries in the future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm going to actually suggest with Joel Marcus and his great two-volume anchor commentary on the Gospel of Mark that in many ways the narrative framework of Joshua is uh, in the background of the way Mark wrote his Gospel. But we'll get to that in a bit. Sure. So what about Haram, devoted to destruction? Well, this is... Uh, It's integral to the story, the story of Rahab, the outsider who's let in, and Achan, the insider who's cut off from Israel, literally, by execution. Uh, Both of those stories and how they correspond and parallel each other depend on the command for Cherem. And what is this command? The command is that something that is designated as harem is something that is taken out of human possession and exclusively made divine possession. That's the fundamental meaning of the word. It's taken out of human use and either... uh, eliminated so it can't possibly be used again by human beings, or it is given to the sanctuary, the temple, 
where it will be used exclusively for cultic purposes in the worship of the Lord. So in a sense, things that are harem are no longer part of the human economy or political structure anymore. Right. So so what's going on here? And of course, we have to adopt an ancient worldview to get this. And I, I can immediately make the proviso here. We have to understand Joshua in its original historical context, which is some ways unique and unrepeatable. And we can't understand the harem command in Joshua as some kind of eternal, let alone repeatable, divine law that we can take up in later circumstances and use. Boy, am I glad to hear that. Right. But it's a, nevertheless, it in this historical circumstance, it plays this definite role. The Lord is taking the land of Canaan out of human usage with the harem command. And that includes the way Israel will get to live on the land. Because if Israel violates the Lord's holy purpose with the land, Israel, too, will be dispossessed. Which is going to happen later in the Old Testament. That's right. It's finally in the exile, right? So the harem command here is perhaps unique and unrepeatable. It's a one-time event that has everything to do with God's agenda of fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land. And it is a matter of the king dispossessing the Canaanite kings, removing their authority, not in order to set up Israelite monarchy, but in order that the Lord alone would be the king of Israel, a situation that prevails all through the book of Judges, the next book of the Bible, and into the eighth chapter of the first Samuel. Uh, so harem is this command to, when you say something's devoted to the Lord, it means taken out of human usage and put exclusively uh, to the use of God and God's purposes. Now, is this genocide? The term genocide is a modern coinage that comes out of the, the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews, which was an act of racial war. It was informed by Darwinian science, a misuse of Darwinian science, of course, and it depends on the notion of genetic, genetic transmission of traits. That's why our word genes and genome and genetics and genocide are all related. They, are, they all have the same uh, etymology, etymological root. So if you're doing genocide, you are attacking racially a specific population. Why is it anachronistic then to call the, the massacres of Joshua and the Israelites a genocide? There's no idea here as develops perhaps later in Israel by the time of Ezra or something like that, there's no idea here that it's ethnic, uh, uh, racial identity that's at stake. Yeah, in fact, it specifically says that a number of people came out of Egypt with the Israelites who weren't Israelites. So they needed right. to be circumcised and kind of brought up to speed on this whole covenant with the Lord thing. 
That's exactly right. And even if they remain foreigners in Israel, and uh, they, they could remain as foreigners, and, the, and we often hear, you shall not oppress a foreigner in your midst because you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Uh, so there's something other going on here than simple racial difference. And uh, I think it has everything to do with whether or not you are in the covenant or not in the covenant, right? If you're in the covenant, there's a specific set of legislation, the law of Moses, that applies to you that you must heed and obey in order, because you're continuation in the covenant is conditional upon your obedience to the law of Moses. But the law of Moses is not issued to the Canaanites they're, because they're not in the covenant. And so the uh, action that's required here is for Israel to serve God's purpose by dispossessing the Canaanites and uh, then strictly adhering to the terms of the covenant and the law of Moses, lest the same, now it would be punishment, the curses of the covenant befall Israel itself. So is, is then the question is, is some kind of punishment being applied to the Canaanites in their dispossession from the land? Are they in violation by being there or have they done something evil that makes them, you know, particularly deserving of being wiped out like they uh, is supposed to happen? Well, this is a good place for me to also talk about the uh, contemporary biblical scholarship, which is all over the place on these questions. It's really remarkable how little unanimity there is in biblical studies about what's going on with the book of Joshua. I mean, there's all sorts of difficulties here. Let me just mention a string of them and then talk about three or four different commentators who I think have made significant suggestions about this. Uh, first of all, there's a problem with the text the Greek translation of Joshua into the Septuagint about 200 years before Christ. Which is Greek, uh, yeah. Which is in Greek, right. Diverges significantly in places from the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, which is, of course, dated a thousand years after the time of Christ. Well, the, the, the oldest scripts that we have are from a thousand years after Christ. It presumably is based on an older tradition, but that means there were, you know, a thousand and more years of scribal transmission before the text that we have in Hebrew. Exactly. And then, of course, we have some text from Qumran, but the t text from Qumran can either corroborate the Greek translation or the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. And so this is a very complicated question of textual transmission. And one very interesting uh, commentator I read about this said, look, at, there's, a, there's a method to the Septuagint's translation divergences from the Hebrew text, namely that Jews living in diaspora, where everybody reads Greek and wanting to translate Joshua into Greek, would naturally be nervous that Greek readers of Joshua would say, these Jews are subversive in our midst. Look what Joshua once did to the Canaanites. <laughs> so there was a certain soft peddling going on. Uh, I'm not sure I totally buy that, but that's, a, you know, one of the kinds of problems. What is the text? Just basic, a very basic question. What is the text? 
there's also a question about his place in the canon. Is Joshua a continuation of the Pentateuch through Judges, perhaps? That would be a Heptateuch, right? If there were seven books that formed an original unit. Or is Joshua part of what some scholars call the Deuteronomic history, which says Deuteronomy launches a further history of Israel, beginning with Joshua or uh, and so forth, on through 1st, 2nd Kings and Samuel and so forth. So it's, it's hard even to know how to locate Joshua canonically. And some scholars will even say uh, that Joshua is a very late book that originally the Deuteronomic history went from Deuteronomy to Judges. And, and Joshua was this, this Joshua narrative was later created and later inserted and edited into uh, to intervene between Deuteronomy and Judges. Maybe another interesting hypothesis, but another you know sign of the problems with uh, the scholarly problems with Joshua. Um, and then finally, um, there are these, uh, all these anomalies within Joshua. I mentioned the outsider Rahab. Uh, there's also the strange story of the Gibeonites. Right, which comes back in Second Samuel and causes all kind of problems for Saul's heirs. It's a, a story that perdures through time. Right, but here is another interesting illustration of the principle of harem. The Gibeonites are locals, Canaanite people, but they have figured out what Joshua's doing to the other Canaanites, so they trick Joshua by disguising themselves as sojourners from a distant land and getting Joshua to make a covenant with them that he won't destroy them because they're sojourners. Then Joshua finds out, finds out they're not sojourners at all. They're in local inhabitants, but he made a promise. He's not going to wipe them out. So the Gibeonites uh, have tricked Joshua into letting them live. So Joshua says, all right, you can live among us, but you must be cutters of wood and bearers of water for the sanctuary. Now, it, this illustrates the idea that harem, harem means devotion to the Lord. All right, we can't take you out of human usage because we promised not to slay you. So instead, next best thing, from now on, you're servants of the sanctuary. You're devoted to the work of the Lord in this way. Interesting. Another, you know, but these anomalies run all through. And then at the end of the book of Joshua, you practically have a civil war between the tribes that settle across the Jordan and the tribes that are to the uh, west of the Jordan. When the eastern tribes have assisted the other tribes in the conquest of the west, they're returning to the land Moses gave them east of the Jordan, and they decide to set up a memorial so that their descendants would always know that they belong to Israel, even though they're living on the other side of the Jordan. When the Western tribes see them putting up this memorial, 
they react with horror. They're creating a separate sanctuary. They're creating a separate altar. They're going to have a separate places for sacrifices. And there's practically a civil war until it's reconciled through a negotiation. And uh, the eastern tribes say, no, there's only one sanctuary. It's in the west. These stones are nothing but a reminder to us that the west is the promised land. So what's going on there? That that's a, that's another. It, is this some kind of indication uh, of the status of Jews who live outside of the Promised Land? That's one another anomaly in the Book of Joshua that scholars point to. So we see, like I've I've said, it's sometimes difficult to tell what kind of story Joshua is actually telling. It's just way too inconsistent to be, you know, pummeling through one single simplistic ideology. So we can now segue to what Christians are to do with a book like this. But just let me briefly talk about four different scholars uh, who have uh, written on Joshua uh, and how diverse their treatments are. A Lutheran scholar, Nelson, taught at the Gettysburg Seminary published a pretty influential commentary on Joshua. And he very much interprets Joshua as totally dominated by the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. So he very much regards it as a Deuteronomic work. He makes a good case, certainly, for the presence of themes from the book of Deuteronomy in Joshua. But what struck me when I read Nelson's commentary was that he gave so little attention to the narrative of the procession of the Ark. It seems to me the procession of the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River, around the walls of Jericho, then to the north to a a couple of facing hills where a covenant renewal ceremony is taken, which dominates, I mean, as much as it's a story about conquest, it's, it's equally a story about the progression of the ark to this place in the north of Israel. And uh, he, he didn't, didn't give much attention to that at all. Uh, and I thought that was a striking omission. Uh, and maybe that's the cost of, of seeing Joshua as simply an extension of the theology of Deuteronomy, because a major theme in Deuteronomy is one sanctuary in one place, namely Jerusalem. Way far from the north, yeah. Way far from the north. And many of us think, you know, the Deuteronomy as we have it is a product of the uh, exile. And uh, Deuteronomy is written from a, a southern perspective, from the perspective of Jerusalem and Judah. But here you have a story of the Ark of the Covenant settling down in the north of Israel. So a second commentator, a very significant one, I think, is a man named Dozeman, who has written the first volume of his commentary on Joshua through chapter 12, I think. And he, by contrast with Nelson, gives great attention to this procession to the north. And he makes the historical critical argument, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that Joshua represents a northern response to Deuteronomy's theology, that the story of the ark's progression to the north is meant to counter-argue 
Deuteronomy's southern perspective and centered in Jerusalem and Judah. My goodness, I have to say I'm getting more and more confused about Joshua, that there can be such almost polar opposite, uh, polar opposite interpretations of of Joshua as a south-dominated or north-dominated book. Wow. Right. So, and this is kind of the problem, of, always the problem of historical criticism is that you have to theorize what really happened, but the evidence is often very difficult to confirm that, and then you have theory overriding evidence and so forth. Let me mention two other commentators that I've found to be rather interesting. The first is a an Anabaptist, a pastor from the Twin Cities area, you might even know about. His name is Boyd. Boyd writes out of the Anabaptist tradition, and uh, he's written a two-volume work called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. So it's, it's not a commentary on Joshua, but it's very much preoccupied with the supposed genocide going on in Joshua. He makes the argument that the sinful uh, ancient Near Eastern and idolatrous uh, portraits of God as a warrior are something that are shared in by early Israel. These sinful portraits of the divine violence and warrior God are not unique to genuine biblical theology at all. They are cultural accommodations. And so he Uh, works with the idea of divine accommodation on the way through a progressive revelation that leads on up finally to Jesus's command uh, to nonviolence and his self-sacrifice on the cross. Uh, So the crucifixion of the warrior God is what takes place in a history of progressive revelation from the primitive notions of divine violence accommodated in the book of Joshua uh, to be superseded by the perfect revelation of the peaceable God of Jesus. This is in a very impressive book uh, in many ways. Uh, he's concerned to say that somehow underneath the divine violence we see in Joshua a pointing forward to the revelation of the self-sacrificing love of God for enemies at the cross. So it's a, it's a theologically serious book. And one that's easy to be sympathetic to in that sense. Yes, very much so. But, I, but again, just like his hero, the hero of Boyd is the church father Origen, who played heavily upon the coincidence that Joshua and Jesus translate into Greek by the same word, Jesus. And so Origen said, we have to read these stories of divine violence in Joshua as really stories pointing to Jesus and his victory over the devil and the forces of violence associated with the devil. The trouble with this reading is that it simply overwhelms the, the text of Joshua. It just it, it supplants the text of Joshua. We never get to hear what Joshua was trying to say in its own voice. There's such an overwhelming need to overcome Joshua with Jesus that Joshua is basically, I think, obliterated, treated as a primitive, idolatrous portrait of God that underneath layers of literal meaning has a hidden meaning pointing forward to Jesus. 
I don't find that very plausible, even though I find Boyd's project serious. Yeah, and I would say it's it's unfortunately not unique, but representative of a lot of Old Testament interpretation at the hands of Christians, the, the overwhelming need to make, uh, in an artificial way, I would say, everything about Christ. Um, not, you know, the, the specific, we might be more sympathetic to the sympathetic desire to deal with the divine violence problem, but, you know, even in less extreme texts in the Old Testament, there, there can be a very ham-handed, disrespectful and deaf-eared approach to Old Testament texts to, you know, contort them into something more useful for Christian interpretation. Right. And there, too, I think the problem with Boyd's approach is that he doesn't deal adequately with the verbal and symbolic violence that saturates the New Testament. There is also a theology of the divine warrior in the New Testament, and Jesus is an advocate of it. (laughs) And you don't get away from that apocalyptic element at all. Just because you spiritualize physical violence into spiritual warfare, it's still warfare. And people who have been victims of spiritual or psychological warfare, even if their bodies are untouched, know how deadly that is. It can be, that's for sure. And so I think Boyd, I think, tries unsuccessfully to defend the New Testament. And his argument is simply, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against angels, principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, to quote Ephesians, right? But I think that spiritualizing violence does not eliminate violence. It just puts it on another level. Well, and also the spiritual evil recruits material uh, allies whenever possible. It's not so easy to separate spiritual from material violence either. And so I think Dozeman's approach on this question is actually superior to Boyd's because what Dozeman points out, he's among those who think that Joshua's a later book that the actual situation was more like what's depicted in the book of Judges, that there wasn't this military blitzkrieg so much as a migration of of Hebrew nomads into the uplands, the the hill country of Judea and Israel, uh, where they gradually uh, established hegemony through a course of several hundred years until the time of Saul and David. Uh, uh, But what he says is, look at all these Canaanite cities in the book of Joshua were puppets of Egyptian hegemony. The the Egyptians were the colonial overlords through this period over over Canaan. Oh, so when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were still kind of in Egypt, even when they got to Canaan. Precisely Dozeman's point. So if, you know, several Hebrew tribes escaped slaves under Moses, came out of Egypt, and started entering into Canaan, they would find other nomadic tribes uh, who would affiliate with them and resonate to their story of being delivered from Egyptian bondage because they would see the same bondage in the Canaanite city-states ruled by their kings who were the puppets of the Egyptian overlords. And so Dozeman is arguing that the, the wars of Joshua were something like 
insurrections against the imperialism of the Canaanite city-states. Oh, interesting. So this puts divine violence into a very different context of revolutionary violence against an oppressive and unjust uh, imperialism. Wow, this might be the salvation of Joshua's political ideology for our time. People tend to be very a pro, pro-revolutionary pro versus imperial violence. I'm not sure always in a justified way, but... I only wish so. You know, if Dozeman's right, uh, Joshua is a script for the those oppressed by colonialism. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how difficult and confusing the book of Joshua can be. All right. Well, let's hear your fourth scholar, and then we really need to move into the, you know, concluding portion. What on earth do Christians do with this very confusing book part? Uh, And that is a a father and son team called, the last name is Walton, Walton. And uh, they have written this book, The Lost Conquest in Israel, or something like that, which is a very good book. And in fact, I've kind of adopted in what I've said previously their ideas about what karam really means. But here just it's a methodological contrast to someone like Boyd. Boyd says the overriding question is, what do we Christians do with the book of Joshua? The Waltons say the first question is, what did the book of Joshua mean to its original audience? And they're both, the, both of these authors are conservative evangelicals. But here you have a a methodological clash between the principle of historical criticism, or at least one principle of historical criticism, that the literal meaning of the text has to be ascertained by interpreting it contextually in its own time and place, because that meaning then secures a baseline for interpretation and prevents outrageous misappropriations of the text. Like happened with the uh, white settlers in South Africa who used Joshua to license their attempt to exterminate the native black Africans living there. Exactly right. And, and, and see, that would be the Walton's point, that you have to understand the unique and unrepeatable nature of the Israelite conquest in order to interpret the book correctly. Like Luther said, God commanded it, yes, but did God command it to you? No. Right, right. Uh, the Waltons actually lift up that principle, I think, in a very important way. And that's perhaps enough said about them. All right. Well, um, I just want to point out two other things within the text, and then let's let's uh, shift into what to do with it. Um, one is you mentioned, of course, Rahab, who is the primary female character at the beginning of the story and as an outsider and in an unsavory occupation is nevertheless held up as an ideal. And I just wanted to mention at the other end of the book, there are two other stories involving women. And I think this is a good principle and in biblical interpretation. Of course, there are not nearly as many women as men. However, when they show up, they tend to be more interesting and the significance of their stories is accordingly weightier because they actually caught the attention of an ancient society. And so the one is the story of Aksa, who is the daughter of Caleb, and he promises her to whichever warrior is most successful. I can't remember exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, And then, so he succeeds, they get married, and he grants her um, like a spring or something. And she says, that's nice, Dad. Can I have the other one, too? (laughs) She asks for a a double inheritance, and he grants it to her. Um, And this story apparently was so important to the the ancient memory of Israel that it actually shows up at the beginning of Judges as well. And again, it's in a 
time and place where women are unlikely to inherit or have, you know, property or resources of their own. This is kind of like a sign of success in the distribution of the land that it gets a generous gift is doubled to somebody's daughter who is also remembered by name. And then in a close parallel to that, we hear the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. Um, there are no sons born to Zelophehad, only daughters. And with the way the land is being distributed, only sons can receive. And so the girls go forward and object to this and say, our tribe is going to end. Our clan will be cut off. We have to have land too. And, you know, they think it through and say, actually, you're right. And so there is land granted to the five daughters of Zelophehad. So they too, these women who don't have the usual protections of men, husbands, brothers, whatever, to give them status and protection, they are granted their own right to the land. So again, a, a, a principle you often see, um, especially it's really powerful in judges, is that when women are flourishing, it's a sign that the whole society is flourishing. And when society is spinning out of control and departing farther and farther from the Lord, women accordingly suffer. Well, now there's a generalization I'm happy to take from Joshua and Judges. <laughs> there you go. One of few. Uh, and the other thing I just wanted to mention briefly is the establishment of the cities of refuge, uh, which is a place it's chiefly meant if there's an accidental manslaughter that would incite a spiraling um, vengeance back and forth between the families of the the accidental murderer and the victim of the accident. Um, the cities of refuge are places where the manslaughterer can go and be kept safe from uh, you know a, a, a vengeful murder in in return. Um, and I just find this to be um, uh, two things about it are interesting. One is that I think the Old Testament is really attentive to how much of human sin is accidental and ignorance. Uh, there's certainly a lot of malicious and deliberate violence and evil and sin that takes place. But I think there's a really profound recognition of how many terrible things happen that we don't intend. Um, and I think this is really hard, especially for um, American culture to take. We only think it's evil if we intend intended it to be evil, but actually so many evil things result from things that we did with the best of intention, as in the proverb, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, or that we had no idea that this would be the outcome. And the Old Testament does not imagine for a moment that your ignorance or your good intention are any excuse if the real result is evil. And so this is a really impressive establishment of a system of trying to help cope with things that go terribly wrong that weren't intended, that were accidents, to stop it from cycling further and spiraling out of control. I, I, I was joking with you earlier that we should uh, establish cities of refuge for people who have, have uh, tweeted something stupid or uh, told an off-color joke once in their life and then their reputations are destroyed many years later for it. <laughs> Yep, I know a few cases like that in my own long life now. Uh, yep. Same here, same here. Okay, well, Dad, let's let's close out now with some thoughts about what Christians can, should, or should not do with the book of Joshua. Well, let's begin with the point I think I agree with uh, uh, several of these authors I mentioned, that this what is reported in this book is unique and unrepeatable. It's no precedent, and it's certainly no prescription for the future. And in fact, the uh, miraculous nature of holy war, uh, if we use that term, some scholars think it's not very helpful here, but the miraculous nature of divine violence 
is such that it's not something that politicians can calculate on. It's really God's agenda and God's doing, and it's not something you can push a button and make it happen. Uh, That alone speaks against the normal stratagems uh, of military conquest. In fact, what we've learned, I think, is that harem removes greed as, you know, the normal motive for going to war and conquest. If the booty all belongs to the Lord and it's not available for human use, well, what's the point of going to war? Answer, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So the later prophets used this tradition of divine violence precisely against the kings of Israel and Judah complaining that they were relying on their own military cunning uh, and might rather than upon the Lord to speak against Israel acting like an imperial power. So I think that's one big takeaway, right? Uh, that's good. Uh, I'm good with that one. Yeah. The, the second one you mentioned, and I think this is extremely important too. You mentioned Luther's statement against Karlstadt and others early in the Reformation who wanted to make Deuteronomy and Leviticus German civil law. And he said to them, yes, God spoke it, but did he speak it to you? Yes, God commanded it, but did he command it to you? The answer is self-evidently no. We have these books in the Bible, but our access to the Bible comes to us Gentiles through the gospel. And so in terms of what we call epistemic access. How do I get to a place where I can know something, have access to knowledge? We always have to remember that as Christians, we approach the scriptures of the Old Testament because access has been created for us through the gospel of Christ. So that our approach, especially to the scriptures of Israel, is that everything that has been written has been written for our sakes upon whom the age, end of the ages has, has come in order that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I take, when we take that hermeneutic to the gospel of, uh, to the book of Joshua, we certainly can take the promises, fear not, I am with you, it is the Lord who fights for you, etc., etc. And we certainly can see a parallel between Jesus and Joshua. And we certainly can, through that parallelism, appropriate certain of the motifs of courage and perseverance and and even, strangely enough, uh, justice from the book of Joshua. As long as we understand that this has heuristic value for us, not prescriptive value. Mm, yeah, that's very helpful. It's not a simple dismissal or um, taming of the Old Testament to fit a, a preconceived Christian idea of what it has to say, but it's um, it's I think as we've said before, it's this two-way street of the Old Testament is the condition of possibility out of which the gospel arises, but the gospel also offers retrospective commentary on what the Old Testament can mean, especially for those who are grafted in as Gentiles. Good. Yes. Let's let's go with that. That's sufficient for now, I think. Uh, another point here, and this has to do with the terrible conflict 
since 1948 with the formation of the State of Israel in Palestine and the dispossession of the Palestinians from lands that they'd lived on for a long time. Without getting into the legal weeds of that whole mess, let's just remember what the book of Joshua is really saying. No one has a permanent right to this land. The whole point of the book of Joshua is that the Lord is fighting for Israel. The Lord is taking possession of this land. And the Lord uh, warns Israel that unless they uh, act in accord with the covenant, the very same fate which the Canaanites experienced can also fall upon them. So the possession of the land uh, is uh, conditional and not absolute. If we're going to say anything about the present conflict <laughs> yeah. in the Middle East. I'm just trying to think of what what do you actually derive from that then? Are you just trying to segment out the religious interpretation of the state of Israel from the political and legal questions regarding the state of Israel? I think that what we have to say religiously to our brother and sister Jews particularly and, and we Christians who certainly, I would certainly support Israel's right to exist, is this right is human right, not divine right. And as far as uh, God's uh, purposes are concerned, the obligation on Israel is to treat with justice those whom it regards as foreigners dwelling in their midst. That sounds good to me. Again, without going into the weeds as a basic principle, yeah. Right. All right, and then we mentioned quickly how the Gospel of Mark in some ways seems to be using Joshua as a template because Jesus, too, from his time in the wilderness of testing, re-enters Galilee, that's the north of Israel, by crossing the Jordan River, and he kind of invades Galilee with his gospel mission, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Ark of the Covenant is processing into Galilee once again in Jesus' mission. And immediately it engages him in warfare with the unclean spirits. And so he's on this blitzkrieg campaign all through Uh, Galilee, healing the sick, raising the dead, stilling the storm, etc., etc., until that fateful middle point in the Gospel of Mark in which he moves uh, towards Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. So I think there's a up until that point when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter basically answers, you're the Christ, that means you're Joshua, Ray Davis. You're Joshua, come back to life. You're Joshua, delivering the kingdom. And now it's time to march on Jerusalem. And there the great reversal, as we talked about in our earlier podcast, occurs that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life a ransom for many. That really, I mean, that increases the power of the story so much if it tracks that closely with Joshua so far. And right at the moment of identification between Jesus and Joshua, that's when the plot lines diverge dramatically. 
And they're the, you know, if you remember, it's David who finally conquers Jerusalem for Israel. And so there's, at that point, it's interesting in Mark, that's where the son of David rhetoric starts coming up after the decision to go to Jerusalem. And then, as you said, uh, wow, those kings, humiliated kings, uh, hung upon a stake and then buried in a tomb. So now you have Jesus identifying uh, in his suffering and death with the enemies, with the Canaanite kings. It's if extraordinary. You follow, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting intertextual uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and if indeed, as we said in our, our last episode, that the heart of the gospel is God's love of the enemies, then to illustrate that with Jesus taking into himself the the iconography of the defeated kings of Canaan who are hanged on the tree and buried in the tomb behind the big stone. I mean, that's just, wow, gives me goosebumps. Yeah, cool, isn't it? I mean, it is really interesting uh, to see these parallels, which we can't be dogmatic about, but it's, it's, it's food for thought. Yeah, well, no, that's, that's not the way iconography is supposed to work anyway. So, again, I think that, you know, just to wrap this up, coming back again to the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts who appears in a theophany to Joshua at the beginning and refuses to take sides and simply says, no, I'm not on either side. Uh, I think what that really means here uh, is, again, the conditional nature of the covenant, Uh, that it's because the covenant is God's doing. And status is not merited, it's conferred. But once this status is conferred through the covenant, sustaining the covenant, remaining in the covenant, depends on conformity to the covenant, particularly for the covenanted, the Israelites. That's why Achan can be exposed and uh, eliminated because of this violation. Uh, so it's just like St. Paul says in Romans, not all Israelites are true Israelites. What, what's called is the nation. What's called is the people of God. And individuals uh, within the nation can uh, deviate from the covenant and then have to be excommunicated or something like that. The, uh, by the way, the Greek translation of the word harem in Hebrew is anathema. Oh, interesting. Wow. So when you pronounce the anathema in the act of excommunication, you are committing an act of divine violence that has its roots in the book of Joshua. Wow. I have to think about that one. Wow, yeah. Maybe that's a hot place to end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that this uh, this discussion has given listeners uh, uh, some tools for appropriating Joshua as holy scripture for themselves. Um, but again, as we've said before, and as we're saying again, Joshua is not holy without all the other books of the scripture being holy together and in conversation with it. It has its place, limited and defined, within the sweep of canonical history. Good. All right. And next time we will be talking all about prayer. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickewilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. 
Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.